When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny of Deljabar. What's up, everyone? How are you? Danny, how are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I can't really complain. You know, I'm really coming to this realization more and more every single day. I've always have been at this real, realization that I despise internet culture. Okay. What kind of internet culture? There's a lot of them. So, for example, Tulsi Gabbard had a post today, okay. and it was like something to do with, you know, the holy week of good for, you know, it's tomorrow's Good Friday. We're mm-hmm. recording this on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. So she said something about, you know, something about Jesus. You have a bunch of co- people just attacking this lady. I this thought she woman. was Hindu. That was one of the first responses I saw. I was like, I thought you were a Hindu. I, was just, I mean, generally, I, I was just curious. She is, she is she is Hindu, or she mm-hmm. practices Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Her father was a devout Catholic, though. So she grew up in a Catholic household. Her mom was Hindu. I see. Okay. I, she ended up converting to Hinduism when she was like 17 or 18, or, or I think she may have been older. But when she was younger, she was a, a, she was a very devout Catholic. And that's where she actually gets her heat from not supporting gay marriage when she was younger mm-hmm. from when she was part of these like kind of these these more so catholic groups i see um but she said something about that and then you just have a bunch of condescending people like fuck you tulsi gabbard fuck you religion is the most divisive thing on earth it's the reason for all war mm-hmm. like militant atheists to just like oh jesus wouldn't like Assad, and i'm just like man this is the most toxic place i think any any brain can be on is to be surfing these websites. But the reason why I bring up Tulsi Gabbard is because um, I had met Tulsi Gabbard once. It wasn't like a meeting like, hello, this is Henry Zimota. I met her at a Tulsi meeting. So it was more of like anyone can meet Tulsi Gabbard like today a meet and greet, right? as long as you mm-hmm. wait in line. However, I got it like the chance to speak to her for like maybe about three minutes, which I thought was was nice. And um there were all these people who were bringing her the book War is a Racket. She was signing autographs of the book War is a Racket by Smedley Butler, mm-hmm. which I encourage everyone to read, read because he was definitely ahead of his time as far as the type of shit that he wrote in the 1930s. And One of my favorite quotes from Smedley Butler, it's a little passage from his book, War is a Racket. This will give you a good synopsis of like the tone of how this is written. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service. And during that period, I spent most of my time as a high class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. 
In short, I was a racketeer and a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, especially Tipico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a, half a dozen of Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the international banking house of Brown Brothers in 1902 to 1912. I brought light, light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interest in 1916. I helped make Honduras write for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China, in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was to operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. Humble brag much? (laughs) Well, the whole book is a... Um, just about his experience as a high-level officer in the U.S. Army mm-hmm. and how <laughs> basically what he was doing. He was just a mercenary for corporate interests who are lobbying, who were lobbying politicians to to pursue foreign policy that they wanted. And there was nothing that he did that was an actual nat- national interest. Yeah, that enough. that is the thesis of the book that was written. Believe in uh, it was it was written before World War II. I forget the exact year it was written, but prior to World War II. So within that within that context, so this guy was dealing with a lot of like South American type, uh, um, kind of a the intra the the uh, the intra period for American colonialism. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, a lot of people trace the origins of of u.s imperialism to the foreign policy after world war one and i actually think that's probably not the correct assumption i think that the imperial nature of the united states goes back much further back it goes back much further than world war one would you would you agree with that or absolutely yeah from everything I mean from the Philippine from the from our colonies in uh, Philippines to the Marshall Plan I mean to the Mon, uh, Monroe Doctrine to the escapades in South America I mean arguably when that, when the United States wasn't a full like coast to coast country you could argue that you know things like the Louisiana Purchase or even you know, the acquisition of of uh, um, California uh, were kind of part and parcel with the same exact with the same exact idea, right? Like they yeah, scooped absolutely. up California with the ideas of like doing more trade with Asia, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, scooping up California or annexing it in the Mexican American War actually kind of leads to what we're going to be speaking about yeah. today. Yeah, it's a good, it's and a good, uh, it's a good, it's good a good segue. segue. Mm-hmm. So, um, last couple episodes, we've been talking about the rise of the nation state of Japan. And, um, we're going to deviate a little bit from that theme, but still talking about Japan. Um, but we're going to, you know, we got up to the part of the story where 
basically Japan starts to modernize. Mm-hmm. And Japan's entrance to modernity was in large a reaction to Western threats. They modernized because they were afraid of being invaded by other countries. Correct. Because meanwhile, in 1843, or excuse me, 1853, when they finally gave in to U.S. pressure uh, for, for to trade or to open up their borders, at that same time period, everyone around them was just being colonized. Right. And, and, and I, I think like maybe we should talk a little bit about China actually first before we talk about Japan. I promise it'll be relevant to Japan, but I, th- I think looking at China is a really good example for this. So you, you might remember we, we talked about this very, very briefly in a, in a prior uh, episode about the Opium Wars, but um, in, in the 17th and 19th centuries, uh, China had developed pretty advanced civilization, I think. Uh, and, and at the time, it really didn't need to import a whole lot of items at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, the opposite was true. The, the things that they were making were in super high demand all over the world. Uh, things like silk and tea and spices, you know, fine china. <laughs> uh, exotic, exotic way, exotic spices. <laughs> Get your exotic spices from China. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And and they were on their high point, you know, like they were, they were doing a whole lot of exporting. And the problem was that China didn't want to trade, you know, that stuff, their, their fine exotic spices uh, for any like Western junk, right? They only wanted silver. And silver was in super short supply in the West. So this caused a bit of a trade deficit that eventually, go figure, leads to a war. Um, it really makes you think about trade deficits today in China, actually, uh, and kind of have the mainstream media's tough stance on China as almost like a modern example of what's what was going on in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, um, you know, with their trade deficits then. Um, but but kind of going back to the past here, so the British were kind of pissed off about this trade deficit bit, and they try to come up with an idea for how do we trade with China and get the shit that we want uh, without forking over a bunch of silver to do it. Drugs. <laughs> they straight up sold them drugs. Opium specifically, and, and the Chinese loved it. Uh, it, it made, it made our, our opium epidemic look like a bad pill habit, to be honest. Um, and so it got so bad in China. Like there were so many junkies, and like their economy was literally crumbling because there were so many junkies for... For this, and they were getting rid of all of their valuable fine china, silk tea, you know, spices, etc., and they're literally trading it so that they could smoke it away in opium, in these opium dens. So the Qing emperor basically tried to ban opium trading altogether because he knew that this was a problem, and the British were totally not having it. So they sent over a bunch of battleships to make sure that the opium continued to flow into China. Right, so they forced them to buy drugs from the British. And one day, the Qing dynasty, the Qing government, they 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 do something drastic. They destroy a shit ton of opium um, to basically curb their, you know, drug problem. And this led to the first opium war, uh, yada, yada, yada. Next thing you know, the British now own Hong Kong, right? So in, in a roundabout way, <laughs> that's what happened. 
now, why did I tell the story about China? Well, Japan took notice of what happened to China. And it gave them the spooks about something like that happening to them in the future. But it also gave them some ideas about being the big dog in Asia, seeing as how China was utterly humiliated by the Western powers. And they also decided to spank China in the Sino-Japanese War, like, really shortly afterwards. Um, But at the same time, the shogunate at home in Japan and the feudal system generally, it was pretty much collapsing. And the emperor was basically a puppet to the shogun. Uh, We talked a lot about this in the last uh, episode that we chatted about. Uh, where we reviewed the warring uh, states period, the Sengoku Jidai, where basically these shoguns were uh, uh, pulling the strings on the emperor. And a lot of people were worried at this time uh, about fighting with Western powers. Uh, Like, it was one thing to spank China, but like, you know, what are we going to do about everybody else? Um, And, you know, everybody else had all these modern weapons, and at the time... Uh, the Japanese government had totally been cut off from trading with the West because they wanted, you know, this is during the Tokugawa period when they were just like, hey, you know, it's just all about us. We're going to close off to the rest of the world. We're, you know, we're doing art now. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing peacetime shit. Um, and, you know, they couldn't exactly build up to a Western strength without trading with the West. And so this is where we can come back to that original prime example of a gunboat diplomacy, really. Um, but I think before we talk about like the the good example in Japan of gunboat diplomacy, Henry, why don't you tell us a little bit about like what was the what was the American and Japanese relationship prior to eighteen fifty three, prior to Perry coming over and and wrecking shit? I think most people start the story of U.S. Japanese relations with Matthew Perry, with Commodore Matthew Perry. In 1853, the famous story of the black ships. Right. So that story is that Commodore Matthew Perry went over to Japan and said, you need to open up these borders for trade with the United States or we're going to fire on your harbor. And Japan ultimately sees, you know, how advanced the western navies are at this point and they can't really do anything about this so hey spoiler alert we're going to talk about that at the end we're going to spoil we're going to talk about that in greater detail but in a nutshell i'm sure a lot of people listening to this already kind of know that basic outline of the story however i think what's what's uh, omitted from the narrative is that the u.s kind of had a minor relationship with japan i wouldn't really say a relationship with japan that's probably an overstatement but there were some run-ins, I would say. You know, they there were just some minor clashes, not between the governments, but just between like civilian vessels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the first contact between Japan and the U.S. was through whaling. whaling. So whale blubber was used to make oil lamps and um, cosmetics and like things like perfumes and you know shit like that. Back back in a time before whale wars. Whale wars. Whale wars. Did those guys save any whales? I think so. And Did if if, if the folks in the show didn't save any, there's like legitimate like um you know, people out there that, that do. Save the whales. I don't know, man. Whales are cool. Whales are cool. I I I don't think you should kill whales. I'm I'm turned off by 
harming any type of like noble sea creature. Yeah. As a side like note, as a side note, uh, a couple of years ago, because of some of the cleanup projects that they've been doing in New York City, um, the uh, East River and the Hudson Rivers were getting clean enough for humpback whales to come back in, and they had been spotted in the river. Really? In yep. the East River and the Hudson River? Yep. Specifically well, in the East River, yeah. Wouldn't that be a treat? Yeah, to just like be... Come to New York, see yourself a sperm whale. <laughs> no, not a sperm whale, but a humpback, for sure. Is a humpback smaller? I think so, yeah. You can see humpback in you. Well, you can see whales like not too far off off the coast of uh, like Rockaway Beach. There's like whale watching. Really? Yeah. I've never seen you, a whale. I'd be interested in that. That'd I have cool. never seen a whale in real life in ever in my entire life. I've seen a shit ton of dolphins. Yeah, dolphins but, I've seen. Dolphins are cool too. But whales, man, those things are fucking massive. Whales, whales are big. But yeah, the first contact between uh, the U.S. And, and Japan was just like through whaling activity, and you know there'd be run-ins of like you know different ships. They knew they knew we, they existed. You know, they the U.S. would have there'd be whaling U.S. whaling ships out in the Pacific Ocean, and also um, Japanese ships weren't supposed to go too far away from the country. Like they had actual laws in place to prohibit their ships from sailing too far outside of like their, their act, their national like ocean territory. Mm-hmm. There are like some prohibits on like how the, they built their ships to, to not allow them to sail the open seas. But and th- there would be some run-ins now. Um, what happened was that in the early 19th century, the U S was doing a lot of trade with China. So what these merchants figured was that Japan would be a natural resupply route. So the first recorded contact between the United States and and Japan was in 1791. So it goes way back. An American ship, it blew off the, on its way to China, it blew off course and it landed somewhere in Honshu. Like in like around the Osaka region, so they landed in on the main island of Japan. Right. But I guess this guy who um, who landed there, he he got away before he was he was captured, and he probably would have been killed at this right. time at this time period. Right. Some he samurai would have, just totally annihilate him. I mean, he would have been just captured and executed. Right. Which was the policy at this time. The next couple of decades, they get a little bit more lenient about like murdering people as soon as they wash up on their shores. But at this time in 1791, this guy was probably like, "Oh, uh, probably probably should leave here." He probably didn't know where the fuck he was to be completely <laughs> honest. I mean, to the Japanese at these times, like their experience were were with Europeans, they kind of saw them as barbarians or as undesirable because think about it like merchants who are traveling from Europe to Japan because they were dealing with merchant uh from from missionaries and traders from Portugal from Portugal and mm-hmm. also Dutch at this time and I mean they look like they just got off a ship right they look so disheveled yeah bearded they have different diets they probably smell probably have gangrene gangrene um I can't imagine that the living conditions that that uh must have been on a like 
on an 18th century vessel right or, crossing or the ocean century vessel from yep. europe to asia mm-hmm. i imagine it's it probably stunk like hell probably sucked wet it's probably lice it's probably just terrible it's probably terrible so naturally when they showed up to japan the japanese were like eh. you guys are gross ew <laughs> yeah it's Get the fuck out of here. So, um, I make a long story short, short Tokugawa, Japan, they shut off um, relations with all Western countries. They only allowed trade with China as well as one European country. That one European country was the Dutch. Because the Dutch, one of the main reasons why they cut off trade was because of the missionaries that the, right. the Christian missionaries that were coming, um, coming to Japan, Japan to start these churches, which and was a they, huge, that was a huge departure from Oda Nobunaga who almost became a Christian. Like he was, he was, he was down for the JC, you know, like he was, he was up with that. The thing about religions is that you now they can, conf- new religions can, can conflict with social orders and, uh, governmental powers or sometimes if they can't use those religions for their own um, power grab and that can potentially be a disruption in their power then they're going to do the natural thing and ban that religion right which the tokugawa shogunate did they they effectively banned christianity and they they murdered christians japanese christians like they persecuted them because there were japanese churches that that started and there's a famous case where there's, you know, this church was burnt down, but that's going way off course. They chose the Dutch because the Dutch were secular, or at least they perceived them to be more secular than the Portuguese who they were trading with prior. Right. Now in the 19th century, it became very dangerous for Dutch ships to navigate through the Pacific ocean because they were at war with the British. This was a time during the wars with Napoleon, and the Dutch were on the side of the, of, of the French. So a Dutch ship, if it, they, they would get fired upon if they were sailing you know, on a route to China or somewhere, if a British ship spotted them. And the, and the British at this time, and for most of imperial colonial history, the British have always dominated the sea. So... This kind of led a uh, demand for or a hole in that usual presence of, of Dutch traders in the ports in Nagasaki. And what, what ended up happening, and this is, this is really funny, and I actually recently just learned this, um, American merchants used Dutch flags to covertly enter Japan and yeah, pretend that. they were Dutch to trade. To, which yeah, is about that it'd be it'd be funny like how do they like do they just fake a dutch accent like oh hello there i am dutch uh would you like to buy some of my things you know like what they, like how did they get away with that i don't know would you like to buy some swish some split beef soup <laughs> i'm from holland isn't that weird <laughs> Faja, can you hear me like Faja, how do they Faja, do, seriously Faja, how do they do that like you know did they have to learn Dutch? You know, because like I'm, they probably the, the Japanese probably didn't understand the differences between the different 
white people. Yeah, but I mean, looking at us is one thing, but like fucking the language is different, right? Like I imagine when you're doing trade with the Dutch, you probably have a couple of Japanese people that speak Dutch and you probably got a couple of Dutch people that speak Japanese and that's how they figure out how to trade with each other, you know? But then these Americans come up with some Dutch flags. Those Americans have to speak Dutch and Japanese. Seems really tough. They may. They well. I don't think that. I I think they found ways to commute with communicate with each other. Um, that were they didn't. I don't think they necessarily had translators. There's ways to communicate using things like sign language when you're meeting someone from a foreign country. I don't think that everyone needs to have like an, an interpreter for the type of trading that they were doing, because the trading that they were doing was like. They weren't social gatherings or anything like that. They were they weren't forming social relationships. It was very regulated and very much like a system where the Dutch basically were in this man-made like wooden island and they had to like throw shit. Like, yeah, you, I know. You know. I mean, they didn't let there. they didn't let them get off the ship a lot of the times, but still yeah. you start to communicate especially for like weights and measures, you know, like this meant this many tons of rice for that many guns you know like whatever it is that they were trading each other well i'm sure these these merchants who are willing to take the risk of going to japan and uh risk having their head chopped off by a samurai um knew enough dutch to to get by or to pass knew enough dutch to fool the japanese (laughs) i'm sure it wasn't very hard to fool them that's something interesting i gotta look into that one day um, something else that's really interesting is that sometime in the year um, 1833, a Japanese boat was blown off course and somehow ended up in Washington State. Neat. So the surviving sailors were they were captured by a Maka Indian tribe and they were you know they were slaves but word got around to the canadians in that area there was a canadian fort mm-hmm. and um you know they 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 were interested in in hearing about or you know seeing who these people were and they ended up making a you know basically a mission to to free these these people and they ended up I think they had a couple of different attempts, but they ended up uh, negotiating for their freedom. These Japanese sailors, there's, I think there was about 12 sailors from the start and three survived. Hmm. And these guys are, it's actually a really interesting story. Um, these, these guys, these Japanese uh, sailors who end up in America, they're kind of used as political props in a way where they're sent to London on ambassador trips and stuff like that. But they eventually make their way or an American merchant named Charles King eventually learns about them. And he figured that he could use these poor bastards as a pretext to travel to Japan. I see. Mm. And he refuses to travel there with any armed ships or any guns or any weapons because he didn't want the Japanese to see him as, um, you know, some Westerner who's trying to swing his his weight around. 
um, someone who's coming there with some type of ag- aggressive intent. Because the Japanese aren't dumb. 1833, or this is probably a little bit after, in the 1830s, this is the time of when Western armies are really starting to, to make that leap over over um, over the East. So I think you know they they know well that things are getting a little bit more real out there. But when he goes there, he thinks he's going on a goodwill mission. He ends up being wrong because when he arrives. Japanese soldiers, they fire on his ship. <laughs> and sadly, these shipwrecked victims, they never make it back to to Japan. They remain for the rest of their life in exile. I think they end up in like Macau or something like that. Hmm. It's very sad. They should, that's a good story to, to dramatize. Yeah, right. Story of Charles King. Story, you know, the story of the sailors who were, who were, uh, who found themselves in America. It would be interesting if it was like a Japanese film in Japanese. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches... April 9th. And and the English parts are in English, but none of it is subtitled so that when the Japanese people watch the film, they're getting it from the experience of the Japanese shipwreck people. And when the Americans watch the film, they're getting it from, you know, that perspective. But we can't really understand what the Japanese are going through. We can only see, right, and like assume what it is that they're talking about. I don't know. Could be pretty interesting. Well, I'm a big fan of doing movies in their own in like in the language that 
um, supposed to be in <laughs> that they're supposed to be in. That's why I enjoyed like Apocalypto so much, right? Because Mel Gibson went. Say what you want about Mel Gibson, the guy is committed to bringing certain parts of the historical period that he's uh did he get, a, he's did he get like an aztec away. translator or some shit yeah he used a i mean he got whoever speaks that language i don't know what the process is there's like guilds who speak these old languages mm-hmm. um but where was i so he so charles king um he doesn't he's not successful and when he actually goes back, he becomes like a big advocate for, you know, for being tougher with Japan. He actually writes a book about, you know, his his mission there and how it was unsuccessful and things probably would have been different if he went well armed and if he was a bit more aggressive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as years went on, this narrative starts becoming more and more um promulgated within you know media culture and government culture you know just mainstream culture um and the u.s starts becoming more and more interested in japan one reason being is that there's a conversion from wood ships to coal ships so the u.s thought that they could use Japan as a possible fueling station because Makes these sense. new ships required, you know, they weren't they weren't using sails. They had they needed some sort of energy right. to um, generate power for them to sail the sea or go, you know, to move to move throughout the sea. Uh, another reason is that before we actually learned more about Japan, there were rumors that it was very rich with natural resources (laughs) wrong (laughs) which ends up being completely false yeah (laughs) they thought that japan was a possible area where there could be a lot of coal mines i don't know they get these ideas to be honest i don't know how they get these ideas at this time period it's it's um i think what they do is that they read like really old text and they look for in a in a look for uh symbols and signs I don't know what access someone from 1830s or 1840s the United States would mm-hmm. have as far as like Japanese literature. I'm sure it was almost it was only come from what's from China. Yeah, so like if pretty they much were that one read. one one dude in China wrote down something in passing mentioning something that sounded like maybe coal in Japan and they're like, "Oh, must be a bunch of coal." Yeah, Japan. I know. There must be there, someone mentioned, mentioned black suit. Must be cool. What's I, I've told the story on this podcast before, but the how the British discovered how they were doing their early uh, like oil expeditions and how mm-hmm. um, they were trying to figure out where in the Middle East probably had oil right. was just going through ancient writings and and uh, old writings and looking for. Uh, societies that used oil lamps to light their sky and, and things like that. Right. And that's how they eventually discovered that there was oil most likely in um, the area around Basra in Iraq and in southern Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's how they actually launched that expedition to find oil there is by looking through history books. And when you get there, oil at that time period before it was 
before modern machinery, it was still visible on the ground. You see it. What you found there. Yeah, you just stepped in it. You would just step in it. I mean, that's how it was in Texas back in the day. You just find it. Like, if you you ever watched the movie, um, it's a very good film. Um, There Will Be Blood. Mm -hmm. There's a scene where... Milkshake. (gasps) That becomes my milkshake. I drink your milkshake. (laughs) Um, There's a scene, though, in the beginning when he's on that guy's ranch and... He's he's like looking for oil. Mm-hmm. He's literally looking for oil, and he sees basically like a river of oil, like a stream of oil coming down from a rock. And he's like, "Oh, this place looks like there probably is oil." <laughs> it's like, duh. <laughs> so it was by done by sight, just like by an anonymous tip, like there might be oil. He was able to confirm it on sight. Um. All right. So so they're thinking maybe Japan is like a good refueling station. You know, maybe it has some coal in it. And you know this this is increasing the U.S.'s interest in Japan, right? And, and well, also what's important to note is that this is the period where escalations with Mexico are starting, hmm. and the U.S. kind of knows it's going to probably annex California soon. Right. Um, California's annexed in 1847, 1848. One of those years, at the end of the mexican-american war once they know that there's california as part of the united states there was an understanding that commerce with asia was going to be even more vibrant and and open up even larger so Mm -hmm. they knew that there was going to be this kind of demand from the merchant class so in 1845 and this is before you know california was ultimately annexed there was a resolution that was put forward through the house to open up relations with Japan. And the guy who's, who's, um, who they chose to do this was a veteran of the war of 1812. Um, Commodore Jason Biddle, James Biddle, Commodore. Oh, Jason, James Biddle to lead this expedition to, uh, Japan. But um, he was given orders by the Navy Department, and I'm going to quote, this is what they said to him, not in such a manner as to excite a hostile feeling or a distrust of the government of the United States, which I just want to point out that that sounds like something that we say even when we carpet bomb somebody (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna liberate the people of iraq but not in such a manner as to excite hostile feeling or a distrust of the government of the united states we're going to uh we're going to launch the most uh firebomb in human history but not in a way uh to have the people there distrust us (laughs) we're gonna launch an unmitigated war drone war on this society, but uh, not in a way that will <laughs> produce hostile feelings or distrust of the United States government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These drones are to limit hostile feelings or distrust of the government of the United States. <laughs> so what did Biddle do? Well, the U.S. was aware of how crazy Japan's isolation policy was so they had to uh, tight they had to walk on this tight rope 
So Biddle, what he does is that he sails directly to Edo. Which is present-day Tokyo. And to make a long story short, he is rejected. But Biddle's voyage to Japan ends up being really embarrassing. And what makes it embarrassing, rather than just the expedition being a failure was that there were some really awkward miscommunications that happened during this this uh, expedition to Japan. So the story is, according to Biddle, Biddle, Biddle. James Biddle, sounds like a Harry Potter wizard. I am James Biddle. James Biddle, you are a Hufflepuff. He would be a Hufflepuff. Oh, James Biddle. He was the best seeker before Cedric Diggory. Um, so Biddle, what this exchange that happened was that Biddle tried to jump on a Japanese ship. Apparently didn't, he didn't have permission to jump on that ship. He thought he was invited. Miscommunication. There's a samurai on board. He pushes him and he draws a sword on him. So he gets into a bit of a tussle. That's pretty Very scary. Awkward. Or the commanding officer of the expedition to be kind of dominated by the rank and file. You know what I right. mean? Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And Biddle, he, you know, he demanded that you know there he be punished by you know the laws of Japan. He probably wasn't punished or anything like that. Probably not. No. Probably laughed about it. But um, it ends up being a failure because all of the all of the uh, terms that the U.S. brought were rejected by the Japanese. And to make things even more embarrassing, when Biddle leaves, his ships couldn't catch a sail. So they had to be towed out into the ocean by the Japanese ships. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That is pretty funny. It's like, hey man, you got a you got a you got a jumper cable. <laughs> it's like getting kicked out. Like it's like, hey man, uh, do you have any money? Do you have any money for a cab? <laughs> can you give me like ten bucks to, like, to yeah. get a cab? <laughs> um. So when he re- when he returns back, when Biddle returns back to the United States, uh, I mean, his reputation takes a really big hit. The press treats him very poorly. And since, oh, oh, here's another part of the story I didn't mention. At the same time that Biddle's there, this is happening simultaneously, there are U.S. prisoners there. Oh, POWs. And he, well, he failed to rescue them. I don't know if he, he probably didn't know of their existence at the time, but there were actually U.S. prisoners there. And what happened was, is that in 1848, a whaling ship was shipwrecked off the coast of one of Japan's northern islands. I forget I forget which one. Mm. But these sailors are end up being imprisoned in Nagasaki where they do most where the Dutch are located where they're doing their trading. Mm-hmm. The US the, the American that finds out that there are there are prisoners in Japan was a guy named Captain James Glenn. And he had actually had a very strong relationship with the Dutch. I think he may have served as an ambassador to the Dutch. He had some tie 
some political tie with 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 the Dutch embassy there or whatever. And, he probably learned how to speak Dutch from them so that he can be one of those merchants that fooled the yeah. Japanese. <laughs> so they told him that the Japanese had American prisoners and you know, he goes to the US government saying, Hey, like there's an American prisoners there. I need to go. We need to make a move to to not only restore our our honor because we are embarrassed in front of the rest of the world by our term is being rejected by this idiot Biddle, but we also have to rescue our guys. And James Glenn is picked to lead this expedition. And the tone of this expedition is a lot different. Biddle was told not, he was told not to rock the boat. He was like, Hey, you gotta make sure that you are uh, not going to piss them off. We're here on goodwill. We're not Britain. We're not France. We're not uh, one of these colonial powers who's uh, trying to get all meddly in their affairs and eventually conquer them. No, we're America. We stand for freedom. So don't do anything too crazy. Now the tone is like, we're America, but we're, you better treat us like with, with some respect. Hmm. The cor- I have the correspondent right here. So in your correspondence with the Japanese, your conduct will be conciliatory uh, but firm. You'll be careful not to violate the laws or customs of the country or by any means prejudice the success of any specific policy our government may be inclined to pursue. Nevertheless, you may be placed in situations which cannot be foreseen. In all such cases, every confidence is reposed in your discretion and ability to guard the interest as well as the honor of your country. So basically saying, be respectful, but don't be a bitch. Don't embarrass us. Right. Don't, if they, if they push you or don't, don't whine like a little girl and say, I demand he be, I demand he be punished. Right. Push him back. (laughs) <laughs> Push him back. Glenn goes to Japan and he does exactly that. He he kind of plays by those by those roles. And um, he doesn't make any direct threats to the Japanese, but he makes vague threats. Mm-hmm. So he lies about like the number of ships that he has and the armor armaments that he has and mm-hmm. things like that. Part for the course. You know, he's saying stuff like, you know, I'm here on behalf of the American, you know, the United States of America and I'm here to do whatever needs to be done by any means necessary. I'm paraphrasing him. You didn't say like I'm going to start launching cannon or cannons into your harbor. However, he was like, I'm going to do whatever it needs to take to get these people back. Right. And he does. He He's successful. Honestly, having these American prisoners in Nagasaki was most likely a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that they were kicking and screaming. Like, why? Like, well, what's the point? Why did they were probably waiting for someone to pick these guys up? Like, what's the point? Of even they probably thought them? they were Dutch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what's the point of even having them? So. I don't necessarily buy that the aggressive tone from James Glenn, you know, was the correct thing to do or made all the difference. I think that the mission was a lot easier for James Glenn because he wasn't going on there 
his diplomatic mission wasn't to open up trade relations. It was just his to diplomatic get mission was just to pick some people up. He was like an Uber. He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like a big Uber. Yeah. But he's successful and he's praised and he becomes a thought leader when it comes to Japanese relations. And, you know, Biddle was kind of um, really dragged um, across the dirt by the corporate press at that time or, you know, I don't know if you call it the corporate press, but whatever manifestation of of uh, of U.S. media was in the 1840s. And the papers. <laughs> what's that? The papers. The pa- The papers. That fiddle there, he's a weakling. We need a guy like Glenn doing our negotiating with Japan. He's tall, strong. He's tough. Um, but when Glenn gets back, he starts to personally lobby for relate for for the U.S. to open up relations with Japan. Um, he also he kind of shits on Biddle too when he's back as well. He writes a letter to Millard Fillmore, who is the most notorious president of the United States. Good old the most well-known president of the United States. (laughs) Who is the who is the most obscure president? I mean, if you put it that way, I guess it's Millard Fillmore. Like, who who is the most unknown president? Like, if you. presidents that i don't know shit about uh just like anyone would know who are just so obscure that most people have no idea who they are fuck i don't know i feel like millard fillmore is in the top five yeah i've always known who he was because i've been interested in this subject but i think um chester arthur (laughs) yeah that's a good one Chester Arthur. I don't. I can't name one thing that Chester Arthur did as president. I, I couldn't tell you which number he was. I couldn't. I couldn't at all. But um, it's really fuzzy between the periods of like Woodrow Wilson to. I mean, maybe like to, between Woodrow Wilson and Grant, it gets really fuzzy. Yeah, I don't really know the the, the procession there. Um, I don't know. Maybe I, mean, like I guess Roosevelt, Tyler. But... You know. John Tyler? I don't know shit about John Tyler. Tyler Perry. John Tyler Perry. I don't know shit about him. I'm making that up. Tyler Perry is an actor. There's Zachary Tyler. But yeah. But um, we digress. So he writes a letter to Millard Filmer, the president of the United States at this time, and he basically says that uh, Biddle's mission caused more harm than good. And, um, no, what he, what he ultimately did was he caused more contempt from the Japanese against Americans and the press echoed the same frustration. So one of the big, big reasons why, um, one of the big reasons why the press was kind of running with his story was at the same time, these U S prisoners in Japan we're, actually, we're coming back and they were telling their stories to the press. So all this information got out to not only the merchant community, but, you know, whoever was reading the paper at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact number of people who are reading newspapers at this time. Um, I'm sure a lot of the, there was were just like local papers. However, um, 
the living conditions that these guys were living in were apparently really bad. Mm. They were they were less than desirable. So there's a lot of animosity that was created right away that was generated from you know from the from the press. Now these tensions you know with with the press and the lobbying from um guys like James Glenn was kind of set the foundation for what later came to be uh, known as the Perry expedition where the United States was not going to take no for an answer like they were going to open up border they were going to open up trade with you with the United States they were going to open up trade with Japan by any means necessary and they were absolutely willing to threaten them with violence and this eventually leads to the first kind of clear-cut example of what gunboat diplomacy is. Yeah, totally, totally. I, I can talk to you a little bit about um, you know the the Perry expedition because I think that's like the natural next step there. Um, you, you know, as you mentioned, it's also the, called the arrival of the black ships in Japanese. It's pretty metal, honestly. Um, but you know, his his first Commodore Perry, he was he was. Um, put in command of the East India Squadron, uh, which was the the one in the Pacific. Uh, And he was basically tasked with a mission to go over to Japan and and, end their 200-plus year closed-door policy. So much, much harder than, you know, uh, our our Glynn or or Biddle's, you know, uh, missions here. And he wasn't a dummy, and he actually preferred to have led the U.S. Mediterranean Squadron, where I assume... It was more like Yacht Week all the time. I don't know. I didn't actually research that particular squadron, but uh, you had to deal with the Ottomans. <laughs> he didn't want to go. He didn't want. To, he didn't want to go to, to to Japan. He didn't feel like it. He thought it was you know thought it was a bad idea. But he did it, you know. And he's smart, dude. It's a long voyage. Yeah, yeah, and and also it's like bad, like you know. It's far from Washington. Like yeah. it's just it's just it's sucks. A pain in the ass to go because. You got to go to California. You got to go First to California. Go. All the way to California, right. The trip takes months. Right. It's, I mean, who the hell would want to go? It must be a pain in the ass in general. But, I mean, this dude but, was smart, yeah. right? And and he did his homework, and, you know, he knew what happened to the folks before him, like Brittle and Glenn. So before he headed out, he basically demanded extra authority from the U.S. State Department to do basically whatever the fuck he wanted to. Uh, or whatever he needed to to get the job done, uh, up to and including military force, and and he did get that. Uh, he uh, it took him a while for them to agree to it, but he he ultimately did get the, you know, the green light to go do whatever the hell you want. Um, and basically, uh, he rolled over to Japan with three warships, three supply ships, and three support ships, which is impressive, but not like you know, <laughs> we're not talking like an armada or anything like that, right? And and they were all blacked out and doped and that's why they call it like the you know arrival of the black ships but he also brought some bargaining chips with them too you know it wasn't just all guns and stuff well actually technically it was all guns but not not in the way that you're thinking um he brought some old weapons that the u.s didn't need anymore as a way to bribe the japanese so they they knew that you know uh japan at, at this moment you know was having some reservations about the west and they definitely needed or wanted uh, you know, Western weaponry. 
Uh, so they, they brought some of that stuff over as a way to, you know, be like, here, here's some stuff we can trade right now, you know? It gift, the first gift was a train. was a little model train. Oh, was it? I didn't read that. That's interesting. I'm pretty sure one of the first gifts that he gave, that Commodore Perry gave um, the Shogunate, was a little model train. He's like... You want choo, some choo, of this stuff, right? Choo choo, <laughs> choo choo, choo, motherfucker. <laughs> well, you know, he, he brought some stuff over. Like he, he he wanted to bring as much leverage over as possible, right? So again, the guns were basically just hand me downs. We didn't need them anymore, right? But the Japanese would love them, and he also came armed to the teeth. You know, he rolled deep when he went out over to Japan to make sure that you know when he got there, the Japanese didn't push him around. Um. And first, he hit the southern island kingdom of Ryukyu, uh, which is now unified under Japan, but at the, at the time, it was its own thing. Uh, it's, it's in the southernmost islands uh, uh, of Japan. And, and basically, when he got there, he, he bluffed about invading them with 200 troops in, unless they open up trading rights with them and let them use like one of their islands for coal refueling. He basically asked them to speak to their manager and like carried his way to a deal with them, uh, because he knew that the you know the the uh, the empire or the the kingdom of Ryukyu would would send word to the Tokugawa shogunate about what was going on uh, in their kingdom, and so basically he went over to Ryukyu because he knew it was a softer target and also was closer, um, and smacked them around a little bit and just lied to them uh, and said we're we're going to invade you if you don't open up so. Just do it. Also, tell your friends because we're coming, you know. Um, and later, uh, um, I think it was the, the following year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, July 1953, he rolled up to Edo, so present-day Tokyo, uh, and he only brought four of his ships with him. And he he just, he, I mean, he came, he went out ham, like, right off the gate. He just started firing blanks, uh, and he was sending a bunch of support vessels to chase around, like, Japanese guard ships and harass them um, and he sent them this is a this is pretty gangster actually he sent them a white flag uh, with a letter and the letter said like if you don't if you don't give up we're gonna annihilate you <laughs> he's like here's a flag to wave <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty funny um, here in the west when we surrender we, we wave wave a white flag a white flag right um, coincidentally uh, at the time, this was just like a really bad time for Japan, uh, or at least for the imperial government there. Uh, the the current uh, Tokugawa shogun, because there was, I think, three of them, three or four, I forget. Uh, but th- this particular Tokugawa, not the original Ieyasu, I forget his name. I think it was like something else. Um, he was sick at the time, and he ended up dying uh, while Perry was around, and he left the shogunate to his weaker son uh, and his son was a pushover and basically the son put the demands of Commodore Perry up for a vote among the lesser daimyos which was actually the first time that that's ever, ever happened at that point where you know they were actually looking for like the input of other local warlords uh, and eventually they all decided that it wasn't a violation of Japanese sovereignty to do a little trading with them. So they were like, all right, fine. Right. But they also did decide to fortify Tokyo Bay because they were like, well, they're, these fuckers are coming back with more. 
weapons we gotta <laughs> we gotta you know build up our forces and so perry tells him all right cool whatever i'm gonna leave i'll be back in a year we'll get it started and then when he comes back he comes back with more ships and more men i think he doubled his men if i'm not mistaken i forget the exact numbers but he brought more a lot more um there was a bit of a fight though uh between japan and the u.s about where they were gonna do trade i know uh, perry wanted to do an uh an Edo, so tokyo and of course that's their capital city, so they didn't. Japanese didn't want that. They wanted them to go somewhere else, uh, and basically do the same, like set up the same situation that they had with the Dutch, where they put them on an island somewhere and be like, "Hey, you don't get off your ship. Just give us a shit." Uh, but Perry is not a pushover, and he was like, "Fuck that!" Uh, and he said, "If you don't give me what I want, I'm bringing a hundred ships down here, and we're gonna wreck you uh, if if I don't get what I want." The U.S. didn't even have 100 ships at the time, so he was totally bullshitting, you know? This is 1853, so this is I mean, even by today's standards, 100 ships, like 100 warships is a lot of fucking ships. That's a lot. I know. You know? It's not the British, not the Royal Navy. I mean, even the The Royal Royal Navy, like to send 100 ships, the Royal, even the, the, at the height of the British peak Royal Navy, that's, that is something. Like, that is hard to muster that many ships it's hard it's hard because we're talking modern ships right we're not talking like you know i know there weren't that i mean even the bit well there weren't really any naval battles in right. world war there was one naval battle in world war one mm-hmm. um but i don't think they didn't have a hundred ships or anything like that right. it was like we're not talking about like robots here, or something you know? <laughs> like we're talking about like yeah. steam warships you know they're expensive they're big uh they're hard to maintain and also for every warship you need several support ships right i told you you know um when when uh uh perry first came over he had three supply ships along with his three warships you know um so the idea of just bringing 100 ships at the time was just like this absolutely insane proposition right that that would have been like if somebody would have said that be like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna fly over a million jets over your your you know country if you don't do what i want right now like a million, that's a lot, you know? That's like a lot, a lot. So Perry's a bit of a G, I think. You know, he he his forces and his his ships were definitely superior to whatever tech the Japanese had, but like when you think about it for real, there would be no way that he would be able to keep up a naval battle for long against the Japanese on the Japanese mainland, you know? Because again, these ships need to refuel, you know, they're gonna run out of weapons. There's only but so many of them. If it was a war of attrition, Perry would have been murdered eventually. I mean, there's no way that he would have been able to, even if he was able to have a dominant presence in Edo Bay, it's not like he'd be able to invade Japan. No, he had like, his first expedition, he had like maybe 200 Marines. Maybe. That's not enough people. (laughs) No, of course it's not enough. And it's not like the Japanese didn't have this is 1853 right come on guys the year is 1853 it's not right. like they have gatling guns yet. right um, well they might have but it doesn't matter you know because we're talking about a country with millions of people in it with japan that probably had you know hundreds of thousands of soldiers including badass samurai mm-hmm. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Then they had, Japan had guns too. Yeah, and and they definitely have guns. Not, Not as good guns, but they had them. They eventually would have been able to, like, kill Perry, not without not been, without some it, cost. But they would it would have been, been very difficult for any country at that time to throw their colonial weight at Japan, and right. I think influence them like they did other countries, mainly because of the, of the geography. Right, it's hard. Mm-hmm. I would have been very difficult to. Um, it, I, I don't. They were able to get away with that stuff in China because China was so divided. Right. That they were able – and they're so, so spread out because, like, all these cities are in China are, like, just – they're hours away from each other. Yeah. They're, mm-hmm. they're very, very far apart, all their major cities. And that's hours in today's, like, driving times. <laughs> yeah. And drive and, – and, yeah, today's driving time. Japan is – Japan's More, a different. It's it's a, it's a different, different animal. It's so mountainous. I don't think that you would have had any successful like colonial colonial mission there until technology got like way out of hand. Maybe like in the late 1800s, maybe post Civil War. Right. That's when you could have started having those things. When you have when you have um, guns that are um, firing at rapid speeds and and things like that but even then i mean we're talking about war of attrition here even then commodore perry just didn't have he didn't have he didn't have it but his ability to swing his dick around and like have that big dick energy about him and do that early and often uh like do that early and often enough was basically the reason why he succeeded he was a poker player he he was like all right these last two guys and the first guy you know, he was a wimp. The second guy, he, you know, he waved his finger at them, but, you know, he had an easy mission, so it wasn't whatever. 
He's like, well, when I go and do it, I'm going to go ahead and like put the hammer down immediately. Like that was his idea. And it worked. I also think, though, at this point, Japan had been this was I think they had to have known that this was inevitable. Yeah, that it was because they they saw all these all their surrounding neighbors get conquered or turn torn apart or carved up. Right. China lost Hong Kong. They were well aware of the technological differences between them and many of the Western countries. And for sure. When when a lot of technology started getting imported in there, I mean, I think they, they really started to realize how far they were from um, just like medicine and just like architecture and, and like things like that. Not even just military technology, just like basic living standard technology. So I think that they knew the writing was on the wall to some degree. I can't prove that. I'm speaking a little bit out of my ass right now, but I, I feel like they, they kind of knew this time was coming. And I think Perry's expedition was very good timing for that to take place because the Shogun died mm-hmm. while he was there. Yep. There was yep. just like the natural, it was like kind of like the natural organic way for them to, um, ditch kind of you know uh, dissemble their feudal state and start adopting western systems of government and western technology because I mean they said it themselves I forgot who this quote was from is like but if we if we basically what they said and I forgot who this was who said this if we modernize if we start adopting this we'll dominate the region Right. Again, remember from my earlier uh, story about how Japan, you know, uh, excuse me, how China lost the Opium Wars and then later subsequently lost the Sino-Japanese War. Japan is on, this is both, uh, you know, their, their, their decision to modernize was both one out of fear uh, for getting spanked by Western powers, but also one out of like imperial desire for domination. Right, because they thought, "Hey, China's out of the game. We we can be big dog now. It's time to it's time to capitalize." Kind of but tie- from there, they do, they do, and, and and kind of tying it back to you know our last episode where we were talking a lot about you know, trying to figure out where does Japanese nationalism come from, you know, where did that start? And we looked at the Sengoku Jidai, the the Warring States period. Uh, to try and find out, like where uh, you know, different examples of where Japanese, um, the Japanese nation state or the idea of being Japanese really came about, and you know, if there's definitely a period where you can say with full confidence, this is you know Japanese nationalism, it's during the the period after um, you know this gunboat diplomacy. It's it's during the the Meiji Restoration. You know, at this point, you know, the Japanese people are active, actively, this is where we actively start seeing, uh, there's a Japanese word for it that I should have written down there, um, but they actively start mentioning the idea of a Japanese nation, of a Japanese, like, uh, uh, nationalism. Um, and, and this, as I said, comes as a result duly of, out of fear of being 
dominated and out of a desire to dominate. And this is when they start adopting a bunch of, you know, modernizing, when they start adopting a bunch of Western stuff. They stop looking to the to their Eastern, you know, uh, allies and, or not allies, but Eastern neighbors, and they start looking at places like, you know, uh, uh, France and, and Germany, uh, Prussia, I should say, and uh, uh, the United States to a certain extent, definitely uh, England. You know, they start getting all the weapons. They, uh, uh, they, they actually do get... Uh, re-centralized around the emperor but this time around um, in, instead of instead of uh, uh, having like a puppet emperor like the shogunate had he he served as a way as a way to unify japan under one cultural tie right that was an easy way to tie them back to the good old days of of you know classical japan where there was like you know divine deities and things like that you know so you know, the, the, Commodore Perry actually, you know, he solidified Japanese nationalism. It, you know, if, if I'm tying our last two episodes together, I think he really put the put that in there. What do you think? He was definitely one of the major instigators of Japanese nationalism or of Jap- the modern modern nationalism and or nationalism in a modern context right. because Japan previous 200 years. They were isolated from the world, not totally isolated, but pretty much for all intents and purposes, they had very limited exposure to outside societies. So most Japanese people, the average Japanese person did not know anyone else who was not, who was uh, different from them. Um, I think that there already was a foundation of of um of like kind of a national unity there already that they were able to build upon mm-hmm. with western political systems so but i think that concept of a people that you need to ultimately create a nation state was already implemented there that's it was a good already point. The, the seeds were already planted yeah that's a good point i don't think that they had to go through obviously going forward and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a, probably in our next episode when we kind of wrap everything and pull everything together. However, I don't think that they – I think they had the foundation of like, all right, we are a Japanese people. We have the society. Then when there becomes more exposure to what the West, that's when they stop start – more so kind of like looking for more um, things within their past to further unify the people there. And that's where you have like the mythology of Bushido coming, the mythology of of the Bushido code. And then that's when you get deeper into like the weird race politics they start getting into. Right. Like the Yamato race and all this stuff that ends up being, you know, pretty kind of destructive for not only their neighbors, but for them as well. This is, I don't want to say it's the genesis of it, but I think it is what wakes that spirit, that imperial spirit, mm-hmm. where they are the victim of gunboat diplomacy, 
but then they become one of the number one perpetrators of it yeah. perpetrators of gumbo diplomacy and to tie this back i guess we were we were planning on talking about u.s foreign policy and and um the modern you know modern um examples of gunboat diplomacy but listing modern examples of gunboat diplomacy is i don't even know if it's if, if it's worth it because u.s foreign policy is gunboat diplomacy <laughs> yeah like it's not i can't list examples of like it's just that's what the policy is you have to do what we say or we'll or we'll we'll remove your government right. find a new one right And I think that quote that you started with in the beginning, you know, re- really, really hits that, you know, brings that home. This Medley Butler quote. Yeah, it's a, I think that everyone should read that war is a racket. Um, if you like reading like old books written in like that tone, it's perfect. Like I do. I love reading like books from the 30s and like the 20s, 30s and 40s. Um just because of, I just love hearing how I love like reading that writing style. It's very different, but it's still it's not like you're reading like 1700 stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just very. Um, the tone is fun to read, but if it, it feels like it could have been written yesterday at the same time. But it is twelve p.m. right now I'm thinking about calling this one a wrap sounds like a good plan because I'm whenever I get to the point where I know I'm I'm not going to make sense anymore (laughs) usually when I want to be like hey all right going into territories where coherent sentences are not going to come out of my mouth (laughs) So might as well quit while you're ahead. That moment might may have happened like a while ago. Coherent sentences. <laughs> there may have not been a coherent sentence in this podcast from me, at least. Oh no, definitely there was. There was. Okay, there was a couple. Yeah, just a few. <laughs> as long as there was like more than two coherent sentences that you were able to pick up, then I feel like that's an accomplished episode. That's <laughs> yeah. I, I think that the two that I can remember are. What's going on, guys? It's Henry Zamoda. <laughs> What's going on, guys? It's Henry Zamoda. I fucked that one up, too, in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. We had to restart that. I said, uh, I called Danny Daniel, and he's like, you need to restart that and call me by Danny. Well, the real reason was because you were screaming into the microphone, and it clipped. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm a little right. You're a little right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bro History. Uh, we really do just appreciate your company and you guys uh, continuing to listen to our show. Uh, it just it means so much that you guys continue to continue to listen. Um, if you're new to the show, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Rating and reviewing the show is the number one way to help us grow. So rate and review. We also have a Patreon. 
Patreon will give you access to our Slack account as well as bonus episodes. So we have had some bonus episodes on this series uh, where we are explaining the rise of the Japanese nation state. Um, so check that out. We have one on China's influence on Japan and another one on the last samurai and their uh, historical inaccuracies and accurate uh, inaccuracies and accuracies. So what they did right and what they did wrong. Um, so join us there. And I have nothing else to say, Danny. No, uh, me neither. All right. Peace, guys. guys. See you next week. Oh, happy Easter as well. This is probably Sunday, so. Happy Easter. Peace.